Warning. The following content contains sounds. It has been shown that some sapiens of the Homo have episodic memory towards some sounds. Therefore, forming a bad reaction to certain sounds. Nevertheless, the sounds we use are only to mock actions and notions, which are, of course, ridiculous. We are not mocking the people who have them. No, no, no. Because you know in time, you may change what you do and change what you think. Having said that, this is correlation sensation. A show where I talk about your mother's mammalian protuberances. Yes, yes. They come in all sorts of shapes, colors and textures and smells. But of course, we will proceed to something more important. And now, the moment you have all been waiting for. Episode 21. The Full Conclusion on Syllogisms. From the book Prior Analytics by Aristotle. Now say that thing I told you to say now. We want you to stay safe. So put on your bumper Betty hats. And put on your gas masks and hazmat suits. For God's sakes, don't touch anything. And now, we are going into the actual book that has eluded us for so long. Because it's a pain in the ass to read. The book is none other than Prior Analytics. And who is charged with publicizing such a ridiculously long book? Who? I'll tell you who, Aristotle, the year was 350 BCE, believed by many modern men. Yeah, so Big Papa Daddy Gork is uh, going to read to you the beginning of this book, okay? Part 1. We must first state the subject of our inquiry and the faculty to which it belongs. Its subject is demonstration, and the faculty that carries it out is demonstrative science. We must next define a premise, a term, in the syllogism, and the nature of a perfect and of an imperfect syllogism. And after that, the inclusion or non-inclusion of the one term in another as in a whole. And what we mean by predicating one term of all, or none, of another. Erastato. Wow. Okay. So like a premise is nothing more than a sentence. Resembling the propositions described in the last book titled on interpretation we covered. If you haven't listened to that, now would be a good time to go back. What the hell you doing? And as a matter of fact, if you haven't listened to the initial preliminary certification that I did last time, you will take off your listening apparatuses and then uh, you will stick them where, where you know what I'm insinuating.
Anywho, so, resembling the proposition described in that last book on interpretation, where the sentence either denies or affirms the relationship between one item slash subject and another. We have our three choices given by Aristotle. One is particular, the other universal, and the other one indefinite. Unlike Aristotle's earlier portrayals of universals such as all men have a two testicles, which is not universal, he uses this term for one subject belonging to slash predicating slash what have you to all or none of another subject. I will give him this one. Not all apes are men, but all men are apes. And animals too. Particular is as self-evident as universal and similarly as indefinite. Yep, these are all words I think you're all familiar with. Following this topic, Aristotle portrays the difference between demonstrative premise and the dialectical one. Demonstrative premises lay down the premise rather than borrowing one where it is coming from some other person, you know, who says something contrary to what you want to say. Then Aristotle said that uh, there is no difference in the outcomes between demonstrative and dialectical syllogisms, since they follow the same exact rules. And here is an explanation given by Aristotle for about the differences between the dialectical and demonstrative not adding into any difference in the conclusions. Quote, argue syllogistically after stating that something does or does not belong to something else. Therefore, a syllogistic premise without qualification can be an affirmation of denial of something concerning something else in the way we have described. Aristotle Depending upon the scope of which one person is syllogisming, is looking at things with a different deductive reasoning process, the argumentative conclusion will have their obvious different outcomes. For an example, the loss of a job is uh, sometimes uh, neurologically hard to accept, but once you focus on the freedom of choices, you already had, but no longer feel obligated to be hindered by that one position you had. Now, you can pursue something more important than the delusional perception of security because you'll realize about how insecure jobs really are. Once you do this, you will find yourself learning things, altering your own lifestyle and mannerisms, you know, i.e. habitual learned traits that you are performed throughout the day. You know. You know that one. Oh yes, you do. If a person focuses on the short term, the spooky and feared alteration of one's environment rather than the learning experience, I have no doubt that the outcomes of both your syllogisms and your life will be completely different. My opinion, for the best outcome, you would want to be the one that learns and grabs life by the meninges. But you may not be that one. 
You're not the one who's reactionary, one who's a scared of spooky pants. You know exactly who you are. Boo! Back to topic. There are also perfect and imperfect syllogisms described by none other than who? Aristotle. Here is a quote. I call that a perfect syllogism, which needs nothing other than what have been stated to make plain what necessarily follows. A syllogism is imperfect if it needs either one or more propositions, which are indeed the necessary consequences of the term set down, but have not been expressly stated as a premises. Aristotle. Well, that sounds kind of rude. He kind of made it to where, you know, anything outside of, you know, the trifecta he was going for is imperfect. Pa fui. What kind of in-depth conversations do you have with someone who argues with only three sentences? The perception of obviousness is also something I want to discuss about this. <clears throat> because depending upon the consumer of the data, you know, which is dependent upon moments experienced prior towards that very moment, moment of interpretation, this is also dependent upon how the information is conveyed. This would explain why when one reads a book five years after reading it previously, it's common for people to find the different perspectives in the same book, or claim to find more about what was read twice. I get let down, if you will, when I read a book which disagrees with me, states a faulty comprehension on the line of reasoning regarding multiple points, with his individual debate on a subject he carelessly reasoned with. But anyways, let's get back to topic. Finishing part one of this book, Aristotle wanted to indicate the importance of relationship between terms as being a function within a larger subject in the conceptual continuity of the function of predication as in regards to reality. I would have taken the liberty to then talk about the Russian dolls. That a set of damn Russian dolls. That damn motherfucking void. I'm gonna call him now. Oh, I can't call him. My phone beepity booped on me. Yeah, it reset itself. His information is lost. Now I have one number. And one number only. Should I call it, or should I not? Nah. So, for part two, I think a quote is the most appropriate here. Quote, Every premise states that something either is or must be, or may be the attribute of something else. Of a premises of these three kinds, some are affirmative, others negative, in respect of each of the three modes of attribution. Again, some affirmative and negative premises are universal, others particular, others indefinite. It is necessary then that the universal attribution, the terms of the negative premise, should be convertible, e.g. 
If no pleasure is good, then no good will be pleasure. What? The term of the affirmative must be convertible, not, however, universally, but in a part. E.g., if every pleasure is good, then some good must be pleasure. The particular affirmative must convert in part. For if some pleasure is good, then some good will be pleasure. But the particular negative need not convert. For if some animal is not man, it does not follow that some man is not animal. Aristotle. Damn skippy. Although, I, you know, if you know me, I always found the idea of uh, good and bad being something uh, completely different depending upon the person. Yeah, you know, it depends upon how people look at it. I guess it's a matter of perception. Kind of like John Papanito. Like, I really make me angry. Anywho. So, Aristotle assured that a reader is ultimately an animal. And he uh, drives that damn nail into that stupid coffin. Using letters such as A and B in the following manner. Quote. First, then take a universal negative with the terms A and B. If no B is A, neither can A be B. For if some A, say C, were B, it would not be true that no B is A, for C is a B. But if every A is B, then two, for C is A. But if every B is A, then two, if the premise is particular, for some B is A, then some A's must be B. For if none were, then no B would be A. Aristotle. Make sense? Don't know what he's going on about that. Sound kind of scrolly. I cut off the quote from completion of the final paragraph for part two due to the apparent redundancy he went into like a fit of rage of uh, psychosis. Perhaps it was him uh, writing about the pleasure that got him uh, all fitted out, you know. First, no pleasure is good. Then, some pleasure must be good. But, we must go on to part three. The same manner of conversion will hold good, also in respect of unnecessary premises. The universal negative converts universally. Each of the affirmatives converts into a particular. If it is necessary that no B is A, it is necessary also that no A is B. For if it is possible that some A is B, it would be possible also that some B is A. For all or some B is A of necessity. It is necessary also that A is B. For if there were no necessity, neither would some of the B's be A necessarily. But the particular negative does not convert the same for the reason which has already been stated. Aristotle. Yes, correct. You are correct, sir. Very much so. 
Uh, it sounds a lot like the ending of part two. Now, if uh, this kind of writing is something that uh, gets your meninges juicing, I would uh, suggest you can go find it and uh, read it. It is a very long set of paragraphs to complete part three. Since syllogism is more of a general topic than uh, the category residing as part of syllogism, also known as demonstrative syllogism, Aristotle wants to get into the nitty-gritty by first depicting syllogism, the hows, the whens, and the means which we will use for every single syllogism out there are held within this book. I will assure you, I will not go over all of them in great detail because I don't think it's too necessary, it's kind of a self-explanatory. So here's the next quote. Whenever three terms are so related to uh, one another that the last is contained in the middle and is in the whole, and the middle is either contained in or excluded from the first as in or from a whole, the extremes must be related by a perfect syllogism. I call that term middle, which is itself contained in another and contains another within itself in position. Also this comes in the middle. By extremes I mean both the terms, which is itself contained in another and that in which another is contained. If A is predicated of B and B of all C, A must be predicated of all C. Aristotle. Yep. There was a vibration going on. Who is that? No. No. Fooey. Miley Cyrus. Only looked her up once. Now they think I want to watch her all time. Watch this. Since I said her name. Boop. Boop, 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 boop. More boops. Oh, you want something about Miley Cyrus? Oh. So. Aristotle just switched it up on the student here. You know, he whipped out his big old and trusty C, slamming it on the table, like so. You know. You know how it goes. Yeah, he, he uh, let the student lap up the juices. Yum, yum, yeah. Also, Aristotle wanted the reader to know that if his A belonged to his B, while his B didn't belong to his C, then a syllogism is impossible. He has no syllogism if his A belongs to his B, but his B doesn't belong to his C. He also even went into detail regarding whether or not the premises were particular or universal. Going into more detail, he used the example of having terms like animal, man, and horse to plug into this concept. It is only when universals are used in a particular order, will a syllogism arise and come, come it shall syllogism. Even if this were true, I have no desire to go into how every man is an animal, while no man is a horse. Wow, that really, really blew my mind there, Gork. Oh, yes, I know. Uh oh, I, uh, I just soiled myself. 
Ma, I'll just hang it up with the rest. Now, Aristotle began to describe what he thought was the perfect syllogism. If a universal relationship is used, regardless if affirmative or denying, and another in part to only its subject, as long as the universality is in regards to the major term, and particularly with the minor term affirming. However, if universality is utilized in regards to the minor term, or if the relation of the terms occur in another way, a syllogism is impossible. Incoming quote. 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 Then if predicated of all means what was said above, it is necessary that some C is A, and if no B is A, but some C is B, it is necessary that some C is not A. The meaning of predicated of none has also been defined, so there will be a perfect syllogism. This holds good also if the premises BC should be indefinite, provided that it is affirmative, for we shall have the same syllogism, whether the premise is indefinite or particular. Aristotle. Once one uses a universal relation in regards to the minor term, there shall be no motherfucking syllogism, regardless of the surrounding variables. Aristotle even uses ridiculous examples for why he cannot syllogize using the situation. Yeah, terms, for example, are those of white horse in swan. Oh, yeah, that's very riveting. Why would anyone want to argue about this situation, hmm? Who has anything to say to argue about the swan in the horse in the color white? We shall use thoughts, emotions, and heart rate. Yes, that's right. I said thoughts, emotions, and heart rate. Oh, yes. Some thoughts lead to emotions. Oh, all strong enough emotions will increase the heart rate. Oh, all increases of the heart rate originate based on some thought process, conscious or unconscious. Yeah. Oh, wait, let me look up definition of thought. Maybe, maybe your idea of thought is different from my thought, hmm? Maybe you think I don't think, because you think I'm wrong. Let's see here. We'll see what the big Papa Google say. I always thought Google was like female, you know. Google, you know. Gork is like manly name. But Google, you can really Google over her. If you know what I mean. So let's look it up. Thought. Definition. Since Void ain't here, we got it all myself. Let's see how we pronounce thought, okay? Thought. 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 An idea or an opinion produced by thinking or occurring suddenly in the mind. Suddenly in the mind. The action or process of thinking. Well, no shit. Remembering intention 
ideas. So, I did what any good individual do, and I found something to confirm my bias. So, we have this dude from Earth Sky. Oh, it sounds very reputable. Yeah. For our purposes, a thought will be defined as the mental activities engaged from the moment sensory information is received to the moment an action is initiated. So, it's apparent that people have multiple definitions. So I come up with my own. That's right. And in spirit of a syllogism, I, Gork, will attempt to give you one myself. First, the premise. Thoughts are neurological processes. Second, the premise. Neurological processes require the act of recalling and sensing. Conclusion. Recalling and sensing is required to think. Oh, this is what I think. Because they are using their neurons all the time. Whether they are really, really, really in the moment or they are not. And for those who want me to acknowledge which figure technically I used, I used the figure number one. Yes. And it is all positive. Universally so. Triple A. Or, if you want to get even more technical, this will be Alpha, Alpha, Alpha. Too many Alphas in that house. When the major premises uses a universal situation, either affirming or denying, while the minor premises is negative, in particular, there shall be no syllogism, our sensation is in nerves, and all nerves communicate the reflection in someone's life that has been brought in. Some reflecting require only nerves. There, I think I just syllogized. Anywho, Aristotle, you know, went to go talk to, uh, talk to that horse. You know, the one he, uh, did all stuff to from all the previous episodes. You know, that one. The prized ragged horse. That's a shout out to his scapegoat. Now, Aristotle claimed that if no M belongs to N, but M belongs to all O, then N doesn't belong to O. I'd argue that if O stands for animal, while N for reptile, while N for human, then this isn't true at all. For we know that reptiles are animals. So Aristotle can suck a syllogism from a snake. My snake. Yeah. Now, since I uh, spoke at the term, we're going to talk about how Aristotle portrays that having both terms being positive or negative in a universal or individual manner, you cannot be syllogisming. Creeping back into that hole, you know, debunked earlier, Aristotle proceeded to roll around in some filthy logic regarding O, N, and M. He went around and around in this, finishing up part 5. Onward, whole bag, part 6.
dirty animal human. Part 6. Quote, But if one term belongs in another of none, of a third, or if both belong to all, or to none of it, I call such a figure the third. By middle term, in it I mean that of which both the predicates are predicated. By extremes I mean the predicates. By the major extreme, that which is further from the middle. By the minor, that which is nearer to it. The middle term stands outside the extremes, and is last in position. A syllogism cannot be perfect in its figure, either. But it may be valid whether the terms are related or universally or not in the middle term. Aristotle. So, whenever uh, your P and R belongs to S, P must belong to R, although if P stands for person and R stands for reptile and S stands for something, then this line of reasoning makes no sense. Thank you, Aristotle. Aristotle also wanted you to know that syllogism is not possible when universals are used with negatives, but possible when affirming. If, however, one uses an affirmation in the denial, with the major subject being negative and the minor subject being an affirmation, then a syllogism is possible. Meanwhile, if the major subject is positive and the minor negative, a syllogism is not possible. If the universal relationship of the first and second term is there, while only in the part between the first and the last, a syllogism must occur, no matter the situation. Okay? You hear me? So, the next quote I'm going to use is going to back up this argument. Quote, For if R belongs to all S, and P to some S, P must belong to some R. For since the affirmative statement is convertible, S will belong to some P. Consequently, some R belongs to all S. And S to some P, R must also belong to some P. Therefore, P must belong to some R. Aristotle. Makes enough sense for me. Then another quote. Quote, but whenever the major is affirmative, no syllogism will be possible. E.g., if P belongs to all S and R does not belong to some S. Aristotle. Well, yeah, of course. It is uh, evident also that in uh, all the figures, whenever a proper syllogism does not result, if both the terms are affirmative or negative, nothing necessary follows at all. But if one is affirmative and the other negative, and if the negative is stated universally, a syllogism always results relating the minor to the major term, e.g., if A belongs to all or some B, and B belongs to no C. For if the premises are converted, it is necessary that C does not belong to some A. No, no, no. Similarly, also in the other figures, a syllogism always results by means of conversion. It is evident also that the substitution of indefinite for the particular affirmative will affect the same syllogism in all the figures. Aristotle. Wow, he got a lot of rules. I think, he was, I think his underwear was on too tight. Yeah, this kind of uh, reminds me of those uh, things I hear of, those love circles, you know.
he likes her, but her likes him, and him likes he, and uh, whoever, you know, plug it all in. Now, I'm going to say something that is very interesting. What if I used A as an asparagus, while, you know, which is a vegetable, and uh, vegetables are not dildos, but some are. No, scratch. On to part eight. Oh, finishing up part seven, like flushing a toilet. Aristotle went around and around regarding all the different rules on how one must form a syllogism and which ones are good and which ones are bad. Mm. Here is a quote for part 8. Since there is a difference according as something belongs, necessarily belongs, or may belong to something else, for many things belong, indeed, but not necessarily, other neither necessarily, nor indeed at all, but it is possible for them to belong. It is clear that there will be a different syllogism to prove each of these relations, and the syllogisms with differently related terms. On syllogism, concluding from what is necessary, around from what is, a third from what is possible. Quote, ended, Aristotle. Thank you. Following this set of words, a message was conveyed that the only difference between the way and a sort of syllogism and a syllogism with necessary premises is that an explanation through logical necessity in the inside of a syllogism with a necessary premises, regardless if an affirmation or denial is being communicated within the syllogismness. End of part 8. Part 9. It happens sometimes also that when one of premise is necessary, the conclusion is necessary. Not, however, when either premise is necessary, but only when the major is. E.g., if A is taken as necessarily belonging or not belonging to B, but B is taken as simply belonging to C. For if their premises are taken in this way, A will necessarily belong or not belong to C. For since necessarily being belongs, or does not belong to every bee, since C is one of the bees. It is clear that C also, the positive or the negative relation to A, will hold necessarily. But if the major premise is not necessary, but the minor is necessary, the conclusion will not be necessary. For if it were, it would result both through the first figure and through the third that A belongs necessarily to some B, but this is false, for B may be such that it is possible that A should belong to none of it. Aristotle. Aristotle then proceeds to lay down an example to make it more uh, palatable for the consumer, but I prefer to do it myself. All C's are B's, but only a select number of A's are B's. Even though an A is an A, and nothing else. I know Aristotle is referring to categories for the purpose of logical deduction, utilizing syllogism in your own face. So I will play along, Aristotle. Syllogism I shall. In order to uh, be a cunt, you must be a bitch. 
Only some animals are bitches. Therefore, only some animals are cunts. Makes some sense to me. Proposing that uh, one decides to use universal, out of necessity, the apparent premises, premise is based on said necessity. Although Aristotle said man is bipedal, which is a wildly inaccurate due to the sheer number of those not having a both legs, universally speaking. Even then, just because one person has both legs, this doesn't mean that they can walk. Like uh, that one dude, Stephen Hawking, yeah. That was one sapien of the homo that uh, did walk for a little while then became impossible to do so. That is it. Oh, that was end of part 9. On to part 10. Part 10 goes into uh, when a premise is born out of necessity, then its end will result out of necessity. Only if the premise is negative, for the positive doesn't function that way. Here is an example from Aristotle himself. Quote, Let A be possible of no B, and simply belong to C. Since the negative statement is convertible, B is possible of no A. But A belongs to all C. Consequently, B is possible of no C. For C falls under A, the same result would be obtained if the minor premise were negative. For if A is possible of no C, C is possible of no A. But the A belongs to a B. Consequently, C is possible of no Bs. For again, we have obtained the first figure. Neither then is B possible of C. For the conversion is possible without modifying the relationship. Aristotle. Never is good skin ball sack skin. But good skin is skin nevertheless. But both good skin and ball sack skin are skin. The conclusion is that not all skin is the same type of skin. I want you to imagine having foreskin foreskin. Yes, foreskin foreskin. Back to topic. A conclusion is not necessary if the initial quoted scenario for a syllogism has taken place by an affirmation forming from the logical flow of cause and effect. While if the initial premise is that for denial of a relationship, a conclusion is not necessary even when this situation is without necessity. But, out of a particular non-universal perceived format, by the outlines that have been uh, laid out by Aristotle in his book, my persuasion that not all types of skin are skin, even if not all skin is the same type of skin at all, it is still not a syllogism. Oh. So, Aristotle mumbled around for about two more paragraphs and went on to conclude part 10. So here's part 11. Included the importance of the relationships between A, B, and C. Here's a quote. Again, let AC be negative, BC affirmative, and let the negative premise be necessary. Since then C is convertible with some Bs, but A necessarily belongs to no C, it will necessarily not belong to some B either, for B is under C. But if the affirmative is necessary, the conclusion will not be necessary. For suppose BC is affirmative and necessary, while AC is negative and not necessary. 
Since then, the affirmative is convertible. C also will belong to some B necessarily. Consequently, if A belongs to none of the C's, while C belongs to some of the B's, A will not belong to some of the B's, but not out of necessity, for it has been proved, in the case of the first figure, that if the negative premise is not necessary, neither will the conclusion be necessary. Further, the point may be made clear by considering the terms. Let the term A be good. Let that which B signifies be animal. Let the term C be horse. It is possible, then, that the term good should be to no horse, and it is necessary that the term animal should belong to every horse, but it is not necessary that some animal should not be good, since it is possible for every animal to be good. Or, if that is not possible, take as the term awake or asleep, for every animal can accept these. Aristotle. Give it up for my mate man Aristotle. I couldn't have said it better myself. Going into how a conclusion is necessary if one premise is universal while the other particular, both expressing affirmation and the necessity of the universal aspect is necessary to include in the syllogism. Going down deeper into the rabbit hole of syllogismness, I found an example that was interesting. I shall be lazy and utilize another quote. Quote, let A be waking, B be biped, and C animal. It is necessary that B should belong to some C. But it is possible for A to belong to C, and that A should belong to B is not necessary, for there is no necessity that some biped should be asleep or awake. Similarly, and by the means of some terms, proof can be made, should the position AC be both particular and necessary. End quote. Aristotle. First of all, there was a time when no animals were two-legged. So, I mean, you know, I mean our planet, you know. Secondly, you don't have to be awake to walk, drive, and so on. Ambient is proof of that. And those who have moments of sleepwalking. I have nothing more to say about this. Besides, the last sentence is the least offensive to my human mind. Yes, yes. While if one were to use a negative affirmation and affirmative premise, where a universal is necessary and uh, negatively so, Aristotle demands a conclusion. For if A cannot belong to uh, any C, while B does belong to some C, it is apparent that A most certainly not belong to at least a portion of some B. However, if it is an affirmation proposition that is necessary, regardless if it's universal or individual, the conclusion is not necessary. Again, with the terms animal, man, and waking, having man be in the middle, where the affirmation is both particular and necessary, with the example of the terms waking and animal in white, for it is necessary that in the animal category there shall be some that belong to the category being white, while waking is possibly something that no animal is taking part of at all. Now, 
Although, uh, you know how much I love this book and find it very riveting, but the time has come up. Yep. Unfortunately, Aristotle didn't put it as eloquently as many sapiens of the Homo have done today, because they had so much time to make sense of it all. Rather than going around and around and around we go, yeah, they organize it in tables, make it real simple, make it look more mathematical and logical. Meticulous, yes. If you want to read it for free, MIT has it on their website, and I believe they have a PDF file you could download too. Ooh. This has been fun. Correlation sensation. This is I, Cork. And uh, before I leave you, I'm going to give you some simple rules, which many sapiens of the Homo called logicians will use to make it uh, way better for you to, you know, soak up all the syllogism. In the both the major and the minor terms should definitely be universal, both in the conclusion and in the first and second premises, if you use the universals within the premises. Then you have the middle term. It must be universal at least once. Then if you have affirmation in both premises, then the conclusion must be as well, no matter if it's a universal or individual. Then if you use a relationship that's affirmative in the relationship that is negative inside of the first two premises, then the conclusion must be negative as well. Now, if someone thinks that they can be some hot stuff and try to make a syllogism with nothing but the negative premises, they are wrong, according to many sapiens of the homo who call themselves logicians. Then, you must always have at least one premise, which is in relationship universally, at least one. Then, if one of your uh, premises are uh, particular, then the conclusion must be particular as well. Having said all that, this has been Correlation Sensation, covering Aristotle's book at least a little bit. On episode 21, we give thanks to a scapegoat, the band, the musician, well, I don't know if you call him that, but the guitar player, he recorded another thing he did. I don't know how it goes, but here it is. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. This is Gork signing off. I leave in peace. Bye.